everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of The Fourth Leg, a tabletop gaming show all about giving new GMs a leg to stand on. My name is Hunter, I'm your host and editor, and I am joined by our abnormal hosts, Joe and Kelsey. Joe and Kelsey, say hello. Hello! I see why you phrased it that way. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you gotta, variety is the spice of life, so they say. Mm, And I'm trying to learn a little bit more about including spice in things. We are honored to be joined by our guest today, a fellow podcaster and independent game designer, John. Say hello and introduce yourself. How's it going? I'm John. Uh, I am one of the game designers for the Black Dragon Dungeon Company, which makes several independent TTRPGs and the occasional D&D supplement. Very cool. Beautiful. And before we get into our topic today, John, we have a fun fact to discuss. This is an interesting one uh, because we're going to be drawing a little bit on personal experience with these games. Today's question is... What is your favorite social encounter that you've ever had in a tabletop game or in real life? Who cares? You know, we make the rules. Live dangerously. Never let them know your next move. All right. Since I think John and Kelsey were both very excited to share theirs. So you guys fight to the death. Who wins? Who goes first? Let the guests go first. (laughs) All right, John, floor is yours. Usually I have to roll to go first, but... uh... (laughs) There's no initiative on this podcast. It's just cutthroat. All actions are simultaneous, huh? Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, No, so for mine, uh, I was the GM, and the party was chasing down another adventuring party that was dedicated to following this dragon. And in the world, the uh, in the world, dragons were evil, quote unquote. Uh, they mm-hmm. opposed the will of the gods. My party was on a mission from the gods. And as they were traveling from one city to the next, they come across a random aristocratic woman at a campsite. During the conversation, it's a lot of pleasantries. And she's like trying to warn them about how the gods tend to treat the people who work for them and everything like that. And the next morning they wake up, woman is gone. One of her servants was still there with some gifts. And right before the servant disappears, the servant's like, by the way, the great lady dragon so-and-so wants to say thank you for the conversation. And the party was like, oh crap, we were talking to the dragon who the party we're going after had dedicated themselves to. So that was just a, uh, that was a fun interaction. I, I really enjoyed that one. Nice. I love turning things on their heads like that. Love it. So much fun. Best part, that was uh, that was actually based off of a random encounter. Like, I just rolled on a random table oh. and mm-hmm. was like, oh, I can connect these three dots right here. <laughs> oh, I love it. Nice. I love it. All right, Kelsey, what you got? Oh, I love it when the when you roll the dice and it's just like, oh, this satisfies the story I was going for. <laughs> so this was the first session of my current campaign that I'm running with my friends. So the campaign that I'm running... It takes place on, like, a celestial college campus. So there's my three players, a tabaxi sorceress, an eight-foot-tall goliath druid, and, like, a five-foot-three-ish tiefling bard. And they're with the other, like, freshmen, and they're waiting for, um, for another tabaxi to make the announcement of, like, so-and-so, go to the school of blah. So-and-so go to the school mm-hmm. of bleh, so, sort of thing. And 
all of the players are looking around and they're looking at the the different colored robes of the different schools. And this was not the intent when I picked these two colors, but this is just how it happened. The like school of centered earth has robe colors that are green and yellow. And the tabaxi immediately goes, <gasps> Packers! <laughs> and and uh, the, the druid is like, what are the Packers? Oh, it's it's part of a, a game that's from my world. It's called uh, football. Is it fun? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's still my favorite. We still reference it. Like, even in all of our later sessions, we still could make a callback to it. <laughs> if you like a lot of sweaty, muscular men putting their hands all over one another, it's a great game. <laughs> Otherwise... Oh, my bisexual heart. (laughs) Well, I'll go ahead and jump in here. Um, This is one of my favorite moments, but it is not funny. Okay. Uh, Oh, yeah. Not with that attitude. There's one in every every group. You can't have it Well, we'll see. (laughs) So in my current game, Mm -hmm. one of my players basically told me, I want to give you full reign of my backstory. Let's just say that like five years ago, my character forgot their memory or lost their memory, Mm -hmm. doesn't know anything about their, their prior life, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I, being the generous and kind GM that I am, <laughs> decided to give him an entire family that he left behind and uh, didn't know anything about that he eventually was going to meet. Uh, oh boy. And he did. He met his former wife. And then he got arrested because of being framed for murder. And it was a whole thing. He breaks out of jail. And then his wife, who turns out to be some badass monk, breaks into the prison to see him breaking out and she's like what i thought people were coming to kill you and he's like i broke out because i thought people were coming to kill you (laughs) and she just gets this look of dread (laughs) on her face and bolts away oh and he picks up pretty quickly he's like oh shit she has a child at home and so he figures out that he has a daughter in a moment of sheer adrenaline oh no and they go home and they find an assassin dead on the floor of their house and the little girl seven years old with blood on her hands uh it turns out she had defended herself successfully against the assassin and was traumatized oh uh and the interaction that he had with his daughter right there and like coming in and being like really tender uh for who is to this point been a very angry and you know bullheaded character Mm -hmm. to get really really tender and soft and caring with this child that he didn't know he had until 20 minutes before and almost falling naturally into that fatherly instinct uh, was really really interesting to role play and the fact that I didn't use dialogue at all I just described the actions of this child who was fresh off of the most traumatic experience of their life mm-hmm. um it, it was a really uh deep moment and one that has stuck with me ever since that's awesome that's really i cool. warned you it wasn't funny guys <laughs> it's still a good experience it's still good yeah it was it was fantastic mm-hmm. all right joe uh so my group uh was kind of their first real experience with role playing outside of like a fiasco session and they were 
journeying through the jungle on this island, kind of trying to get get the lay of the land, and they had run into some kobolds. Uh, obviously, kobolds are generally that early adventurer fodder. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had killed a wandering party of them, and then they come upon this like sunken tower where they have kind of established a base. Mm-hmm. And they had the opportunity to just kind of like go in there, guns blazing or spells blazing, as it were. But they actually chose to try to figure out what was actually going on. And they had fled the temple where they and their dragon overlord had lived because something else was there. So it was more of an interplay between two things that they weren't necessarily seeing everything of, but. It was really nice that they actually gave it the opportunity to be like, man, what's going on here? Like, why are, why are they wandering around? Like, mm-hmm. they don't seem to be very settled. And actually, like, kind of took some clues. Whereas, like, your average party's like, no, kobolds, murder hobo. Like, let's see what the dragon treasure is. Like, it was a really cool moment, especially for some early uh, TTRPG time. Whereas, like you get some of those bad habits later on where you're like, all right, cool. What magic items does it have? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That makes me think of, um, it's not a one-to-one, but it makes me think of one of the Discworld books Mm -hmm. where essentially a fantasy cop has to completely retool the biases that he has against, I think, goblins. Mm -hmm. I can't remember the name of the book. It was probably a watch book. Likely. Uh, But anyway... Discworld is uh, great at kind of dismantling a lot of those fantasy prejudices mm-hmm. that are present, and and that really gave me gave me good vibes. Mm-hmm. So that's an awesome moment. Thank I you. love when characters kind of go against the accepted norm. Heck yeah! Yeah, it was an awesome awesome time to watch unfold. Beautiful. All right, and with that, let's go ahead and get into our topic today, which is. Social encounters in the power structures within them, uh, which can get really deep. So I guess I'll put a small content warning here. Um, we could touch on some subjects that'll make people uncomfortable because power structures tend to get a little um, dominating depending on the people that uh, you interact with. So just be warned. I don't know where this conversation is going to go, but if it gets into a sensitive area, please take care of yourself. And we are going to go ahead and allow our guest to speak first. John, what are your thoughts on power structures in social encounters? So first off, uh, yeah, I'm likely going to be talking on subjects adjacent to racism and colonialism, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially as uh, Joe's example for his social encounter. Because when we think of the typical like first level fodder, your goblins, your orcs, your kobolds. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. those are the D and D quintessential others. Yeah. And yeah. the power structures are put in place because A, it offers an easy oh, we have to defend against the orc like it offers a very easy world building that mm-hmm. I don't want to say is lazy. It's very tropey, which isn't necessarily a problem. I don't. I personally don't have an issue with tropes, mm-hmm. either being played straight or subverted. Uh, by all means, use whatever tools that you have. But you end up with these situations where, from the top out, like the easiest way to start building is to go, okay, 
we need to we need to have some type of conflict because you're not gonna have a story without conflict mm-hmm. war is the easiest conflict and also the most dramatic conflict and also the one that suits a game like dungeons and dragons best because mm-hmm. dungeons and dragons is a war game simulator yeah. Uh, yeah. despite the many evolutions it's still a war game simulator yeah. and so you have to have sides and you want an easy way for your players to come together in the first couple levels and have mm-hmm. a reason to fight. And it's, well, this nation has been at war with the goblins forever. And this is where I could potentially get myself in trouble because there's a lot of, like, there ends up being a lot of nuance and good stories with power mm-hmm. structures mm-hmm. and social dynamics in yeah. the sense that a level one player should almost like have no issue with the power structures depictions of the enemy and the power structures propaganda Mm -hmm. but as they grow in level and power that you know that's when those type of things should be questioned Mm -hmm. like when the other group is first introduced introducing them with like some of the propaganda stereotypes and whatnot as long as the story addresses that and provides a mean to reconcile that I don't necessarily see as a bad thing. Of course, mm-hmm. I'm also speaking from a very privileged position as a, you know, middle-class white male. So uh, I understand that my, my mileage goes a lot further with that than uh, some of the marginalized communities. Um, mm-hmm. But as you, as you zoom on down and you start to, you start to meet these people, and you interact with their own power structures and how they've built themselves in response to this war or in response to this cultural criticism uh, mm-hmm. combined with their cultural value uh, their cultural values that's when you can that's when you can start breaking down that propaganda and go no this is a fully realized individual mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. has their own values and beliefs and they actually tend to align with mine in a lot of regards which I think I kind of ended up avoiding the original question. I apologize. (laughs) No, it's totally okay. Um, Half of this show is tangenting into wherever it ends up going. And yeah, I think think there is a lot of stock in what you're bringing up because, I mean, I like to think of it in, in terms of human development, right? When you're a kid, or in this case, when you're starting out your adventure, you are not going to have a lot of influence or a lot of visibility on the world around you. Mm -hmm. You are only going to have a very limited radius of knowledge around where you have grown up or where you are currently growing up uh, or where you work, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And as your influence grows, as you become more well-traveled and as you gain more experience in both a mechanical and literal sense, you are going to learn more about the world. And a lot of your preconceptions of the world are going to break down and your influence in the social dynamic is going to change yeah so holding on to um or having prejudice born from ignorance is not necessarily a bad thing the bad thing is holding on to that prejudice and holding on to that ignorance when you are presented with countering information exactly exactly and you know the structures that are set up to either reinforce that ignorance or help break it mm-hmm. down can also reveal very interesting interesting facts about the world because 
a power structure is going to have two main forces, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. two main factions within it. And that's going to be the faction that wants to uphold the status quo and the faction that wants to change the power structure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And there are arguments for both sides that can be very compelling to people who think that they are not part of the argument. Yep. Yeah, it's really important, uh, especially on such a um, large scale mm -hmm. of social conflict to... Yeah, we brought this up uh, in our last episode about you know philosophy, religion, and politics, but it's really important not to cast a judgment on something before your players get to it, mm -hmm. right? Because if you have a preference for one side of a social conflict, that's going to come through in the way that you present them as a GM, Yeah, right? And your players are going to pick up on that, and they're, depending on your player base, either going to lean heavily towards your opinion or against your opinion. Mm -hmm. And you want to let the players kind of make their own decisions on what factions they're going to ally with or ignore. You know, they could ignore both. They're the players. It's, it's their story as much as yours. Yeah. So understanding that the dynamics of things, there is value in almost every ideal. Mm -hmm. Heavy emphasis on almost we're not going to get into all the nuance of it but mm -hmm. there there is almost no ideal in the world that holds no value and showing the positive values to your players and withholding your own judgments is going to make your story a lot richer in the long run or even just presenting as is with with kind mm -hmm. trying to withhold your own personal judgments as much as you can whether yeah. the points you present are positive or negative just being like, mm -hmm. well, this is just, this is how they look at it. This is how it's presented, yeah. whether it's mm -hmm. you know, right or wrong. Yep. Yeah, it's up to you to decide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Joe, why don't you go ahead and take the reins and we'll go ahead and uh, kick off because we have a lot of notes on this one. <laughs> we Our do. It's full <laughs> uh, this Absolutely. time around. And uh, I'm very excited to get into the nitty gritty of, of everybody's individual thoughts mm -hmm. so joe take the floor yeah so i looked at this from from three perspectives right uh so i went from micro to macro how these factions interplay with different levels of your world uh and kind of tying to some of the things we've already talked about the first thing that i would ask is like how does this power structure impact a character's view it may be your player characters it may be an npc so Think about this, like the main four members of the Star Wars cast, right, dislike the same group, but they dislike them for different reasons. So, for example, we have Luke and we kind of talked about like being on the fringe and not really like having a developed perspective. The only reason Luke at the outset of the of the movie doesn't like the Empire is because he has friends who ran off to join the, the rebellion. Now, he has developments that cause him to kind of see, like, the type of people the Empire are with the farm and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a, it's a very old movie. I'm sorry if you've, uh, <laughs> you're, you're not spoiled, but they, they do kill his family. And so, you know, he kind of understands, like, well, they're looking for these droids and they've destroyed this entire family to find them. Han, on the other hand, is he lives on the edge of the Empire. He literally skirts the rules because he's an outsider. But we come to find out through backstory that he is kind of a washout. He used to be a pilot 
and kind of got disenfranchised with the things that the Empire was doing and was like, yeah, man, I don't, I don't really care about all that. I just want to make money and keep flying. Like, I want to do what I love, but I don't really want you to tell me how to do it. Mm-hmm. Chewie is one of those marginalized communities. And a lot of people mm-hmm. look at Chewie as like a background character, but he was an alien who was mistreated because he wasn't human and the Empire was very pro-human. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. whatever race you want to call that. But he's he's been yanked around. You know, he helped out the faction that was previously the Empire. And then come to find out they turned around and stepped on everybody that assisted them. Mm-hmm. Whereas Leia is a member of that community that wanted to try to turn things around from the inside. At the start of the movie, she's a member of the Imperial Senate. And the Emperor is just like, yeah, you know what? This this body is largely symbolic anyway. Like, we're just going to get rid of it. And so it's kind of that moment where you're like, oh, well, we've literally thrown away the only reasonable discourse now. So we have to do things a different way. Mm-hmm. We have to go into these military, you know, maneuvers and things to try to change things. So the big thing is, like, ask yourself how this group, whatever group you're building or whatever group you're looking at, how did they impact these characters in a specific area? And when you're introducing somebody to the party through either, like, a small group or a mouthpiece, start small and then let them grow, kind of like John was saying. You don't need to like show them the full nuance of the group all at once. And you can use this to subvert that later if you want to dive into like sub-factions after the fact. For example, Final Fantasy VI is a pretty well-loved game. Uh, we have the Empire, and we initially only see Kefka and the soldiers that report to him. But later on, we start to develop, hey, there's this really honorable general who wants to do things by the book. His name's Leo. We mm-hmm. have Celeste. She's this knight who actually joins some of the rebels to try and, like, uncover the things that are moving around in the background. It's not just, oh, hey, well, it's this one weird clown guy and a bunch of assholes. Like, there's there's more nuance. There's more depth to it. If you want to make a group feel very powerful or overwhelming, that's fine. But I would do your best to keep those rank and file as kind of those faceless mooks or sniveling bureaucrats. I use the Fire Nation here. We've also talked about the Empire with Star Wars. Mm -hmm. But literally the people that we see from the Fire Nation point of view until we really start getting into Ozai and Azula... Are there a bunch of soldiers that work for, uh, you know, wow, I'm blanking on names and it's not like I haven't watched the show. Uh, General Zhao? Uh, yeah, so we see the soldiers that work for General Zhao. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a bunch of kind of like bureaucrats who are like tagging along and serving under him. Mm-hmm. And then we also have, um, wow, Mako's character. Uncle oh. Iroh. Uncle Iroh. Yeah, Uncle Iroh. Yeah. And so we have a few different factions, but we don't, like, go into this big, long, like, okay, well, here are all of these ministers and how interesting they are and all the things that they're up to. We start small. Mm -hmm. They are the premier military force, but we don't need to know every soldier's name and have that a lot of depth right up front. That kind of comes later. 
Yeah, it's not a Robert Jordan novel. Not everybody needs names. Yeah, my mind, my <laughs> mind went to freaking Game of Thrones. It felt like I had to make mm-hmm. a freaking flowchart to track everything, and I'm like, I'm not yeah. doing this. There are there are whole chapters where you're like, oh, I guess this guy's really important because we talked about his family history for six pages. Uh-huh. Oh, he's dead at the end of this chapter. Well, okay, guess not. Yeah, I d- yeah. I was looking at my uh, email newsletter has like a oh, have you started watching House of the Dragon? Do you need to keep track of all of the factions in marriage? and things and i'm like no no i don't (laughs) but they had a link for that i mean and not to not to prevent kelsey from giving her opinions but like the examples of game of thrones versus avatar Mm -hmm. for power Mm -hmm. structure like that's that's also just good examples of how to approach it both ways Mm -hmm. because game of thrones especially the books because the tv show did well for a while and then they didn't with how they adapted Mm -hmm. this. Like the whole point of game of Thrones was how individuals with power work within the other power structures. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. just because you have power and authority doesn't mean that you can defy the social power structures that have been established. Littlefinger used the power structures to, extreme benefit and positioned himself as one of the most powerful people in the kingdom versus ned who was like oh i'm the warden of the north i'm the head of the stark family i'm the hand of the king all of this stuff and the honor that should go with these titles will protect me from the power structures when i go and accuse these people of this thing and surprise it didn't you know, and those are just first season spoilers for anybody who hasn't seen the, mm-hmm. what is it, 10-year-old TV show now? We, we <laughs> yeah. spoiled it last episode, no worries. Well, yeah, we're good. You know, the 30-year-old book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> A Game of Thrones came out in the mid-90s. Yeah. So when Martin was writing all of that backstory in, in all those power structures in the uh, in the introductory text, it was so that you could guess and figure out what was going on, mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. added to the drama. It's why when... Rob came back from that campaign and was like, hey, I married this nurse. You had a sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach. Like You were like, oh, no. Like, boy, you messed up. Mm-hmm. Uh, right up until, you know, right up until the Red Wedding. Mm-hmm. You know, you, yeah. you weren't quite sure how bad he messed up, but you knew he messed up. Contrast that to um, Avatar, mm-hmm. where the power structures are very broad strokes. So you never have that... Mm-hmm. You never really have that detailed um, sinking pit feeling anytime anytime something went happened. It was very, like, everything was very cause-effect immediate, you know? And then another another great example is, I don't know if you guys listen to Old Gods of Appalachia. Uh, know of it. A friend of mine recommended it to me. I haven't listened to it yet. It is a great podcast. Uh, it mm-hmm. really is. It's a great horror podcast. And in... One of the, like, in the most recent episode, I'm not really going to say any spoilers then, uh, but in the most recent episode, uh, one of the characters is talking with a supernatural creature of power and, you know, basically, you know, basically says, hey, I know I'm a normal dude. I know you're not a normal dude. And as soon as he said that, I was like, oh, no, Mm -hmm. everything that this like everything that was about to happen for this guy. Yep. is not going to happen now at least not the way that he because 
they spent that time building up that intricate power uh, power dynamic mm-hmm. in these social situations. So, like, it all just depends on what type of feelings you're trying to get across, whether or not you want, like, whether or not you want to build that tension or not. And, Mm -hmm. like, both are fine and valid techniques. It's just a matter of what feeling you're going for. So the next step that I started to look at is how those factions impact your city or your region, kind of depending on what level of scale you're looking at. I would keep a pretty short list of the major players on the board and then whatever issues they're either interested in or involved in. That kind of helps you know on a bigger scale like what this faction is up to and what its major players are after. Mm -hmm. Obviously those interests, if they're good, interesting factions, will intersect or run at odds with the party. Mm -hmm. And the question that you have to ask yourself from that faction's point of view is how that group is going to handle the extra attention. Are they going to seek to bring the players over to their side of things? Are they going to just go full Dark Brotherhood and be like, all right, cool, kill this guy while he sleeps? Like, what is the actual play and and what falls within their modus operandi, really? Yeah, I think that, to your point, having, even if it's just a singular point of, of conflict having some kind of social issue going on is a really good way to help inform whatever group you're trying to develop Mm -hmm. in their motivations, right? Mm -hmm. To use something in recent memory, the changing of a monarch is a really good one. However that change is coming about, whether it be something violent, something natural, something Mm -hmm. willing, the changing from one monarch to another signals... Uh, you know, in a, a tumultuous social sphere, a point of weakness yep. for the power structure, or in something a little bit more stable, it can just be something like a new era or a breath of fresh air for the people involved in the social structure. Mm-hmm. Even to John's earlier point, like, yeah, a lot of stuff we we start out with some kind of war. Even if you pick mm-hmm. one of the two sides in the war and say, hey, look, they're changing monarchs maybe even because of the war maybe we lose a leader in that battle okay now we get to take a closer look at that faction delve into those two or more sections within and kind of see what it's all about Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely i think one thing to keep in mind too is are there ask yourself when you're looking at this power structure are there groups in the area that either benefit or struggle because of the faction directly for example, the Empire we'd already talked about, you know, non-humans mm-hmm. are, are directly negatively impacted because of the things the Empire does. Yeah. I mean, you can look at any number of, of factions in media, and you're going to see, if they do a good job explaining what the faction is doing in the world, you're going to see people who are thriving because of what they're doing and people who are struggling. Because if they're only showing you the people that are thriving, it's either propaganda or... They're saving that for the heel face turn, uh, the face heel turn yeah. at the end. And we've talked about tropes already once, mm-hmm. at least once. Tropes are a thing and a persistent thing because they work yep. as storytelling devices. Uh, now there are some of them that are kind of tired. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, certain ones like you know the one that comes to mind is the wizened old wizard right? Mm -hmm. This is your Dumbledore. This is your Gandalf. It's 
um, what's his name from Aragon, Brom, the storyteller who comes to town, uh, turns out to be Aragon's real dad. <gasps> Whoa. Oh, twist! I've not or, read the book. I don't know. Or Moraine Sedai in uh, yeah in Wheel of Time. Even though I got to make a Wheel of Time reference because I finally finished the first book. Yay! I'm so I've not read that book either. Hey, it's all right. <laughs> But even in the Wheel of Time, you can have Moraine Sedai or Tom Marilyn fill in that role of the wizened old mentor. And it's a trope that works for a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. Having somebody brand new to the greater world at large and somebody who's kind of seen a little bit too much is such a uh, such a cool juxtaposition of perspective. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's a really interesting power structure in a dynamic because it's like what's going to win out enthusiasm or cynicism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and the wizened old mentor also provides the very excellent point of being someone who can explain the current power yeah. structure in the world. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just be mindful that they don't turn into Mr. Exposition or something like that. Yes. yes. If you're going to write one in, don't make them an info dumper. I, I would argue that that's fine because that's their whole point in the narrative. Okay, so I'm going to disagree on one point. Um, <laughs> yes. That is the I... point within the narrative. <laughs> um, but it's the presentation uh, where you need to be careful. Uh-huh. Answering questions is fine. Kind of steering your player into multiple pages or paragraphs of exposition without prompt is where you get into uh, what I would call poor writing territory. Um, because you're just hijacking the story to explain mm-hmm. all of this stuff, most of which is not relevant or will not be remembered. You know? Yeah. It's like you don't need a whole chapter to describe how the hills look in the Shire. Right. I'm just I'm just <laughs> thinking of the intro of The Shadow over Innsmouth and the fact that there is a guy at the bus station that completely unprompted and talking for pages talks about the town in which the main character is going to be driving into and the history of that town. Again, unprompted. Love it. It's it's just like, oh, this is an NPC. Let's see what he's up to and just word vomit. <laughs> Listen, just because you just because you're not excited to be on a bus tour of the Shire or Innsmouth does not mean that <laughs> that it doesn't provide some value at least. Um, yeah. Finally, so obviously we've looked at a region, we've looked at how it impacts people. Now, how does it impact the world? So, look at your world that you've created. What what world events have they participated in or been impacted by? Maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe they've been impacted and those world events have kind of shaped that faction's view. And mm-hmm. this is where you kind of get to, to look at the the bigger why. Mm-hmm. You know, are there other major factions that they're at odds with? You know, how large is their wake? So are they mostly just a regional faction or are they affecting things continents away? Like what what level do their actions take place on for the most part? Mm-hmm. And even real, you know... In the grand scheme of things, ask yourself, okay, is this faction either directly tied to the overarching plot? Are they a consequence as part of the overarching plot? Or are they just kind of players in that? So my three examples here were the Empire, which we've already talked about at great length. Shinra from Final Fantasy VII. Mm -hmm. They start off as kind of the, oh, the big bad. And on all of the Final Fantasy VII art, you see Cloud facing down the Shinra building. But at the end of the day, like they're not the final boss. Yeah. A lot of the a lot of the big fights come because of their actions. 
and things they've set into motion but shinra mm -hmm. really has no no stake in the game at the end of the game right they're kind of yep there and then we have capsule core to kind of hang one of kelsey's favorite pieces of medium in here they literally exist in the dragon ball universe <laughs> but aside from bulma chasing down the dragon balls early on in the show yep. like they don't play a direct role they usually are, are the go-to tech guys or the Speedwagon Foundation and JoJo, they literally like mm -hmm. come up with valuable information and technology to get the characters from point A to point B. Yep. But they're not major players. And you kind of have yep. to ask yourself, where does this faction fit in my world? Yeah, because, yep. you know, different factions can, they can be beneficial, they can be antagonistic, mm -hmm. or they can be neutral. Well, this actually, I think, segues pretty well into uh, what I want to talk about. Go for it. Go for it. Which is the writing side of social encounters. So we've talked at length about examples of social encounters and how those work on a macro scale, right? On your big picture, you know, corporations and monarchies and organizations that act as social foils. Yeah. So in writing, there is... I don't know if you would call it like a writing tool or a, a, like a writing device that mm -hmm. separates conflict into three big umbrellas. Mm -hmm. And that is the character versus the world, mm -hmm. the character versus another, and the character versus self. Yep. Right? You know, we've talked a lot about character versus world, which is, you know, world here can stand in for an organization, a monarch, the literal planet, mm -hmm. you know, if you're going Marvel or DC. Or classic Aztec mythology, because they believe that the yes. planet Earth was destined to eat everyone. So <laughs> were they wrong? I don't know. Uh... Brown bears are kind of scary. <laughs> Back to your point. We're not going to go down that existential discussion today. I mean, they... I mean, at the end of the day, the world does kind of win when you get buried in it and decompose. That's true. <laughs> Existentialism is another topic. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is why we put the content warning at the start of the episode. <laughs> uh, oh, now I want to talk about that, too. But right now, we're going to focus. <laughs> yes. I'm going to focus specifically. Mm -hmm. uh, the second is character versus other. This is not necessarily the character versus a cultural other, uh, like we talked about with orcs and goblins and kobolds in D&D. &D. Mm -hmm. This is just another entity, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It could be a small group of entities, like a bandit group, or it can be a singular entity, like the king, specifically. Or right? your personal rival from fourth grade. Yeah, or a personal <laughs> rival. Or a best friend turned enemy. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of different things that can be encompassed in other right and then there's character versus self and this is typically speaking going to be self-image or self-worth juxtaposed against your public image right yeah. mm -hmm. um, so these are, are three big umbrellas of social conflict that you can have i like to think of these like a scale whenever i'm thinking about the power dynamics that lie within them you can either choose or read where the weight is heavier depending on the type of situation that you're in. Mm -hmm. So if you're in a scripted sequence, this is going to be something like meeting major leaders or story characters that are written into the, the story that are linchpins to the plot and how it moves. Mm -hmm. You can control that one a little bit more. You can say, okay, well, my players are going to meet 
the leader of the Shinra Corporation mm-hmm. in a Final Fantasy tabletop game, right? Mm-hmm. The leader of the Shinra Corporation is going to have a lot of weight in a social encounter, especially if they're meeting uh, that guy on his own turf, yeah. right? If you go into an improvised sequence, like the characters try to negotiate out of a combat rather than fight out of a combat, then you have to be able to read the room a little bit more. Mm-hmm have a little bit of social awareness to the best of your ability. It takes practice, uh, and you kind of have to read how the situation is going to go. I have three ways that you can do this, right? Uh, There are so many more, but I'll just condense it to three. One is going to be the real-world charisma of the player involved, right? Or players involved. Mm -hmm. Stat values don't always do a good job of explaining how socially adept somebody is Mm -hmm. yeah so the in real life charisma of the player uh speaking is going to be really important to get a gauge on because if they're making really really strong arguments and keeping a level head then they're probably going to sway the character a little bit more than if they fly off the handle or uh you know are are really shy and kind of closed in on themselves right this isn't a judgment on players who aren't necessarily great at public speaking but taking the way that they're talking through the character and kind of giving them a little bit of that grace of maybe they're just not good at speaking but this character would present it better Mm -hmm. um, is going to affect the weight of a social situation Mm -hmm. i was going to add to that because i actually came across an article on of all places D &D beyond recently that was talking about Mm -hmm how to role play a high charisma character for somebody who at the table is a little more reserved or shy and a high charisma character does not necessarily have to have a silver tongue they can also have like a force of presence like they could be the doer of the group rather than like saying eloquent things they can just go off and do they -hmm. could also do other things um i i just went with the go off and do example because i have a number of high charisma Mm -hmm. characters npcs who are in my campaign who they cannot talk like literally they cannot talk they just get up and do the thing Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, but they have high charisma because of the class that they are it's like a force of presence um it, it could also be just like force of intimidation like being able to like loom over somebody and you don't have to say anything you can just be like you got to do the thing with with a big hulky form or like you know thinking of i had a player uh who had a like 11 year old sorceress and she's like Mm -hmm. you should really do this thing or else i'll set this (laughs) thing on fire (laughs) and it it worked (laughs) um because you know threats can also work as well and that can be its own display of power being able to not just make the threat but also being able to back it up that's exactly my second point Mm -hmm. which is threats of violence (laughs) so napoleon bonaparte said that god favors the side with the best artillery and that basically boils down to he who has the biggest stick has the most social presence. Yep. <laughs> As an artilleryman, I really love that quote. <laughs> oh, it's so much fun. It's it's one of my favorite it's quotes. Great. Well, it, it, one of the reasons that I like it so much is because it's like it's correct, right? Yeah. This is unabashedly true. 
in, in most situations where the person most capable of swift and effective violence, typically speaking, is going to be on top of a power struggle. So right? this is this is starting to touch on like a lot of my professional and uh, academic mm-hmm. studies because mm-hmm. I, di- I did study military history for a while. Um, mm-hmm. I've been working on my degree in it for 10 years, not dedicatedly, but, you know, that's... Mm-hmm. D- yeah, I get it. Life gets in the way. Anyway, um, so the, the side with the best artillery wins isn't necessarily the capability to provide swift and effective violence because artillery is slow. Yeah. Effective artillery is slow. It takes a minute. It takes a minute to get it all right. Even in, um, you know, even when the field artillery was actually on the same field as the uh, maneuver units, it was very, like, it wasn't hugely responsive. But the fact of the matter was the French artillery, Napoleon's artillery, was some of the most advanced artillery in the world. And so it was a combination of advanced technology and extreme casualty producing effects. And then the subsequent demoralization that those effects have, you know, because, and to tie, like, to tie it all back in to like what you and Kelsey were saying, the threat of violence is, effe- like, I find the threat of violence to be more effective than the actual application. A, because people's imaginations uh, tend to be a lot worse than what reality is. Oh, yeah. But, yes, mm-hmm. you do have to be able to back it up, and you have to back it up every once in a while. And artillery, like, definitely serves as that threat and backup because, yes. like, after that first volley, when – after that first volley, people tend not to be in the same spot anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, whether involuntary because they were hit by the artillery or voluntary because they ran away from it. You know, and then in like D and D terms, it would be you know it would be the threat of fireball. You know, yeah. Of, you know, nobody's gonna exactly. nobody's gonna stand in the same spot that a fireball just went off. Um, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that sort of thing. So it's it's that combination of it's that combination of power and advancedness. Swift is great because at some point people are going to start calling your bluffs if you are not quick enough on the draw. Yeah. But. Yeah. Like swift isn't swift isn't necessary. If you want swift and decisive action, you use your melee combat. Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. you want shock and awe and to bring the thunder, then you use stuff like artillery, and that's that's making like that's that power structure making a statement, and then tying it back into power structures so that we remain somewhat consistent with the thread. Power structures <laughs> tend to tend to attract and consolidate those types of things underneath themselves mm-hmm. either just because of the sheer cost and expense of developing and maintaining that advancement mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. because of how dangerous that thing can be and it is beneficial to maintaining societal status quo to limit and control that group yeah yeah like yeah. determining who gets what power yeah 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 Yeah. with the threat with that threat you you can only break that egg once right and Mm -hmm. then it's done you then you have to find another threat to to hold up otherwise you're just you're you're not negotiating anymore it's just outright Mm -hmm. violence yeah yeah it's not the threat of violence anymore 
Yeah, um, that's better than I think I ever could have said it, John. Uh, military history is not my forte, so thank you for the clarifications. Yes. Finally, social status and perception are going to skew the scales of a social encounter. Um, so let's just say you are in the court of a monarch who is well-loved or feared by his subjects or her subjects, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're going to have a lot of that social weight. Yeah. But if you meet them out on a battlefield or in a side alley, they're going to lose a significant amount of that bargaining power because they're not in a place where they have people to support them. And having that social support is going to be a huge part of the weight that they bring to an encounter. Uh, So keep those three things in mind, charisma, threat of violence, social status and location and perception. And that'll help you kind of narrow in on uh, where the weight lies in a social encounter. All right, Kelsey. Oh, this this makes me want to this makes me want to go on a tangent about like artifacts and who owns them and why. But uh, <laughs> we could we could go for days about that because I studied this with regards to African art history, and I don't want us to go mm-hmm. down that particular rabbit hole. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, instead of that rabbit hole, let's go down the rabbit hole that we call your notes section. Kelsey, what are your thoughts? I wrote extensive notes before uh, this one, so. Looking at looking at the notes that I had typed up, I'm actually going to approach this backwards because of mm-hmm. everything that we've been discussing so far in this episode. So I actually want to talk about like I want to talk about something that's particular to my campaign. Uh, since mm-hmm. we've been talking about who wields the power, how do the people who wield power tell the story versus the people who have been dominated? How do they tell the story? And with that, mm-hmm. I want to get into the example of. In my campaign, what happened to the Valkyries and what the angels mm-hmm. of Jehovah did to them. So, and this is, okay. this is something that my players are now very aware of <laughs> for reasons that I will get into in a second. So we started our previous session, the most recent one that we did. We started the session with the players all getting together and my bard character befriended another bard NPC and the bard NPC Mm -hmm. said I really want to get access to the Valkyrie's last lament but the staff at the library says that I can't listen to it because I need to get approval from Kay who is the mentor to my player characters in previous episodes I have disclosed this mentor character is a celestial of death so this is something that this particular NPC kind of knows the NPC knows that Kay is the child of the last Valkyrie, and mm-hmm. the Valkyrie's last lament is something that was recorded by Kay's mother, because it's the last known artifact that the Valkyries have, because their their world got destroyed in a conflict with the Angels of Jehovah. So the player characters approach Kay, and they're like, we want to listen to the song, and Kay's like, you don't have my permission unless you're strong enough to handle it. The reason for that is because the song, as it plays, they have to make constitution saving throws, which the difficulty score increases after every verse. Ooh, interesting. Yes. Um, For folks who may be curious what the song is, it's actually the final song from Drakengard 3, White Scales, Black Claws, if you want to give that a listen. Because this is a pop cultural campaign that I'm running. It pulls from a lot of things. 
So if you want to listen to that, each verse has a different tempo to it and a different speed. As the song speeds up, the difficulty score for the Constitution saves increases. And if you fail even one, you start to experience symptoms. And the symptoms of listening to this song include bleeding from your eyes and ears, hallucinating seeing white lilies, and hallucinating seeing black crows that look at you and start screaming at you and flying at your head. The player characters did not get to finish the song because Cave was like, you're hallucinating crows, that's the last step before you start seeing rivers of blood, I'm turning the music off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, well, the the bard character uh, was like, no, I can listen to this song. Let me listen to the song. And it's like, no, no, you are bleeding from the ears and you're seeing crows. You can't walk. You can't listen to this anymore. And so Kay turns that off and the player characters are like, why is this song like this? And Kay tells them this song has this kind of power because it's only sung by one person. If it's sung by six people, it can destroy a world. Oh, snap. And the reason that the angels came after the Valkyries was because they knew that the Valkyries had this kind of destructive power. And the Valkyries saw what the angels were doing to the people who resided in their world, and they said, we can't let them win. We have to destroy this. Even if it means destroying ourselves, we have to do this so that the angels cannot get their hands on this. And so they sang the Valkyrie's final lament and destroyed their own world so that the angels would not win. Unfortunately, though, the angels did fight them, and most of the Valkyries ended up either dead or kidnapped as bride prizes. And in fact, Kay's mother was promised to be one of those bride prizes to a throne. And this is all relayed to the players after after Kay's like cast some healing magic on them to be like, okay, you're not going to bleed from the eyes and ears anymore. You're not going to be hallucinating crows or white lilies. I'm going to answer your questions. Um, but Kay was like, yes, my mother was promised as this, but my mother ran to this school because this school is a form of sanctuary, fell in love with my father and then had me. But then the day that I was born, the angels found out where she was and they took her away. And the only reason they did not kill me was because my uncle Theo scooped me up and ran out of the room. That is the story that Kay relayed to the players. That's intense. It is very intense. And this is something that Kay has lived with their entire life. Or mm -hmm. at least most of the most of the life that they have heard this story. Because for the first like 16 years of the, their life, they did not hear this story. They were raised by their grandmother far and away from all of this. And then mm. once they turned 16, they heard the story and they went, I have to find my mother again. And that's the journey that they're at. And this is why I develop my NPCs the way that I do, because like, yes, the, my player characters are the main characters, absolutely. My NPCs are also on their own quests. But the way that Kay tells the story is noteworthy to me and something that I hope is noteworthy to my players because... So far in this campaign, they have not encountered the Angels of Jehovah in combat yet. They've only heard stories from Kay and Kay's father and mm -hmm. some of the things that Kay's knights have said. 
And Kay's knights are like, oh yeah, I definitely saw angels. They're fucking weird. They're like people with like no eyeballs in their heads, but they definitely have eyeballs in the floating crowns that float above their heads. Don't like that. Yeah. <laughs> Don't like that. Yeah. So I'm going, bi- <laughs> I'm going biblical angels here, or like at least the angels that are depicted in like Dante's Paradiso, because Dante yeah. had an imagination. Dante also had a lot of people he didn't like. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that he wanted to write about. Yeah, I have yeah. I have the Divine Comedy like in one volume, and half of the volume is the trilogy itself, and the back half of it is just the notes saying, this is who he's referencing, this is what this means. <laughs> this yeah. guy's in hell. These are all the people that he didn't like, and so he put them in hell. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, continue, please. Yeah, stuff like that. You, the, the players are only hearing one side of it. And as soon as the bard heard this story, hearing everything, the song and everything, she was like, I run out of the room. What is the furthest edge away from everyone? And she and she goes to like this like side bank by a river, hides in a little cave and cries for several hours. And I'm like, I have successfully broken my cheerful bard. <laughs> It'd be like that sometimes. It'd be like that sometimes. And the other and the other two players were like, we'll let we'll give her some space so that she can process this because yeah, she's been kind of the de facto leader up to this point, not because she's the most charismatic, mm-hmm. but because she's the one with the wacky ideas. And the mm-hmm. other, the others of us are like, you crazy son of a bitch, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is actually a really good example, and I, I really enjoy this, of using plot events mm-hmm. to make your characters reflect on themselves, mm-hmm. which is that, you know, character versus self mm-hmm. moment yep. where it's like you give them this view of the world or they have a particular view of the world within the radius of their experiences, and then you either challenge or completely break that view of the world and you force the players to come to a decision point where it's like what are you going to do are you going to change or are you going to break with the world Mm -hmm. and being confronted with that choice is a big social moment for characters that you're never going to find in any pre-generated book or anything because it's so personal Mm -hmm. to each and every character so i think that's an awesome story and a beautiful moment i mean dark don't get me very wrong, dark but a, a beautiful moment from a character social perspective yeah i was going to actually i was considering using that as my favorite interaction at the top of the episode at the top of the recording mm-hmm. but i was like nah i'm gonna hold on to that i'm gonna hold on to that yeah. save it for later <laughs> savor it for the last Savor it for the last minute and also to prove my point which is that mm-hmm the narratives that you tell and the narratives that the characters live through have an outsized impact on how they see the world. Kay has a particular view on the world because of what the angels did to their family. Yep. And the, and a lot of Kay's knights have their views on the world because they saw what a throne did to Kay. Not, not the throne that had kidnapped their mother. Uh, one of the lower-ranking thrones had come across Kay's knights, and they got into a very long, drawn-out battle. And the knights were like, "Woo, thrones are nothing to be messed with, and those are only the third strongest rank <laughs> in the angels' ranks." Oh yikes! <laughs> yeah, who tells the story is mm-hmm. very indicative of that power structure, and like. Mm-hmm. 
when you actually get a chance to see both of those stories play out, mm -hmm. you get for some very interesting moments. Because like I was saying in my fun fact at the top of the episode, my players were on, you know, my players were on a mission from the gods. The yep. god of death had spared their life brought them back in order to go hunt this party down mm -hmm. because this party was trying to bring back the dragons. And the cultural narrative is that the dragons defied the gods yep. and almost destroyed the world until the gods, uh, you know, put the dragons out, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and as a constant mm -hmm. reminder of that, uh, there's a symbol called dragon tooth mountain. And the legend is that the head God of might dropped this mountain on top of his dragon avatar in order to defeat him. Mm -hmm. so that is the that is the cultural narrative and that's what my players think is truth then as they're going along and they like they meet the dragon and then they actually meet the party they the party like stumbles across them in a tavern they're in a tavern trying to figure out their next move and the party comes walking in and it was like mm -hmm. oh shit what do we do after their conversations and whatnot they realize that uh the uh the dragon's story of it was that the gods were attempting to prevent the world from progressing past a certain point because it seemed like once a generation there would be some great like war or upheaval that would basically reset everything um and this event was coming up the city that they were in mm -hmm. was getting ready to go to war against one of the other one of the other major cities and this was going to reset everything but the party that uh, my group was chasing had the ability to stop it and prevent the war or prevent like the total destruction or everything, mm -hmm. which is why the guys wanted him dead. But between, between all of that and then my party found a demon contract on a succubus, which was another random role that just worked out well for the uh, story. Nice. Uh, the, <laughs> like the leader of this city made a, made a deal with a demon for power. And, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. you know, so they found this contract that was written in blood on human flesh and Woo! the leader, the leader of the city just happened to have scars that lined up with the stitching on the contract. Woo! Um, <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> yeah, yeah, no yeah. big deal. Um, yeah. they, they realized, oh, this dude made a deal with the demon and the guys were like, yeah, we don't care. Like, however he accomplishes this, he is still doing our will. And yeah. it was like a big deal for the party because, you know, we had a cleric and a paladin and when they all when they all came to their decision, the paladin renounced his oath. Ooh. The cleric Ooh. renounced her god. Ooh. Everybody was just renouncing any ties they had to the gods. And the party ended up basically summoning the demon in front of the Lord, in front of the entire city, because he was giving a big speech before they marched off. Mm -hmm. and they snuck onto the uh, they snuck onto the balcony and summoned the demon and the demon's like what's up bro it's time for your payment and drug him back down to uh drug him back down to hell you know so that's how they ended up resolving that ultimate conflict it's so creative it is very creative uh then i let uh not related to power structures but i did let them die in the resulting uh civil uprising that happened because everybody just saw the leader <laughs> get dragged down to hell by a demon Mm -hmm. uh, obviously <laughs> caused some social disturbance as the power structures were understandably upset mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. party died in that they go down they're like being tortured by the gods of death and in the middle of this torture one of the dragons is reborn mm -hmm. and because of that i allowed all of the party members to become one of the dragon avatars 
So for the final battle against the God of Death, they fought as level 20 dragons with breath weapons and all the associated uh, magic for their classes and everything. Oh man, I bet that was fun. Yeah, that was uh, that was so that good. was super fun. Uh, probably one of my best resolutions I've done yet. Nice. Gorgeous. Yeah. But yeah, like I said, just just knowing where the stories are coming from, like because the gods won the war, they framed the dragons as the bad guys, and oh yeah, mm-hmm. uh, they were able to get the devout to basically think that they were the good guys going after these dragon groups. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know the dragons like. It's yet to be seen whether the dragons are good guys or not, but at the very least, the dragons are like, well, look, the gods are not great either. And mm-hmm. so that, uh, you know, mm-hmm. those, those, two relative, uh, those two relative structures and power structures and what they do when they conflict and how, they, how their stories shape everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Just thinking there about... There was a coherent thought in there at some point. I <laughs> It's all good. Uh, It's it's like how John Green put it when talking about Viking history. Uh, It's like, history is written by the winners, but when it is written by the losers, they can be really sore about the winners. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And with that, I'd like to thank you all for joining me for this discussion. Uh, Are there any quick couple sentence last minute thoughts that we want to get in there? Uh, This is not quick, but this was something else that I wanted to bring up. (laughs) (laughs) Breaking the rules. I know, but I wanted to. I know. Screw your rules, bro. But wanted to (laughs) wanted to bring this up as like, it's okay if you bring up like sources of conflict and power dynamics between your other players. Just be mindful Mm -hmm. of like how how the players will kind of do the aftercare afterwards because like players Mm -hmm. and characters are two different people um and i'm bringing this up because there was one campaign that i was playing in as a player and i retired a paladin character because he wasn't jiving super duper well with the other uh with the rest of the campaign Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and i was like well what character would jive really well with these people and i went a grandmother so I I created a grandmother. I named I named her Alice of the Grey Hills. She was this dwarf fighter battlemaster with all of the dexterousness of a cow standing in a hammock. And like that's such a good <laughs> That's such a good analogy. I'll give you a second. <laughs> Is the hammock still elevated? Because I'm trying to figure out if the cow's legs are just like constantly going, yeah, shooting out under it, or if it's or just it's so just heavy like that it's just the on the ground with the hammock like coming up to its knees. Does it matter if it's on the ground? Then it's just ground beef. It's, it just it just yeah. goes it just goes to the mental image. I, I refuse to acknowledge this. But yeah, I was playing this grandmother character and. Like her story was, she was a landlord, a noblewoman who retired from her thing after her husband passed away. And she's like, I've always wanted to go on an adventure, and now that my husband has passed, I can finally hit the road. <laughs> so, the old ball and chain is off the ankle, ladies. That's how, that's how she talked too. I was just, I was like, oh, oh yes, finally I can channel my inner Grammy. <laughs> I love it. And so she, and it. but she would she would talk about like what being a landlord even was with the centaur character because the centaur character has mm-hmm. no idea what that is. And as I was like yeah. describing it in character as Alice, 
Like, some of the players were, like, just glaring daggers at me, because they're, they're very anti-landlord, very anarchist, <laughs> and I'm just like, ooh, I am testing some boundaries here. Yeah, I, I think the one thing to be really, really careful about if you're going to try to play a, uh, some kind of social weight against another player is that being being dominated is only fun in certain contexts, mm-hmm. and conversations are not typically the, uh, those. Yeah. Safe words are important. So, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so work within your, your boundaries and everybody else's boundaries, and, and get consent if you're going to try to pull a socially dominant move on another player. Yeah, this is where session zeros can come in real handy, or just having like a mm-hmm. sit down with your players and being like, "Hey, I want to, I want to bring this up through this character, like, or this character is going to yeah. be this thing. This thing is this something that we would be willing to explore? Mm-hmm. Like that conversation is important." Yeah, agreed. But with that, thank you again for joining us, listeners. It has been. Such a great conversation. We covered so much. Oh my God. But now that this conversation has come to a close, I want to thank you specifically for joining us, John. And I want to invite you to tell us a little bit more about what you've got upcoming, what's going on with your projects right now, and where can we find you on the internet? Well, thank you for having me. A lot of fun. So you can find me uh, at Twitter at BDDC underscore pod and if you go there you can find pretty much uh you can find my link tree in that bio and like links to all my other mm-hmm. projects uh i do have uh i do have some games up on drive through rpg uh under black dragon mm-hmm. dungeon company then there is my podcast lonely ttrpg which is a weekly podcast where i play and review a new solo game every week Ooh. So we just did uh, we just did episode twenty five as of the filming of this uh, dwarf mine, so Ooh. that is up on your podcatcher of choice or YouTube as well. So if you're looking for some Beautiful. solo adventures or recommendations, you can definitely hit me up there. And then for upcoming projects, I am working on my own. Uh, I am working on my own system, as mm-hmm. everybody who's been involved in TTRPGs long enough ends up doing. <laughs> and, uh, yep. that is called wanderer which will be using dice pools exploding dice and leveling is based off of adding dice to your pool or moving your dice mm. up from like d4 to d6 oh man this sounds like something Ooh. specifically geared to reward the dice goblins in the world <laughs> Uh, yes, no, it is definitely it is definitely for dice goblins. It's definitely for it's definitely for those people who don't like like don't like the standard. Oh, I level up and like maybe my attribute skill increases. It. No, it's hey, if you use this skill, you have a chance to level it at the end of that day, and you know you just build skills however you choose to build your character. It's all classless, so you don't even have to worry like you don't even have to worry about oh well blah blah blah. Like your background will give you a handful of benefits up front. Mm-hmm. It, it'll give you like five extra dice total spread out across the skills. But awesome. you know, outside outside of that, all classless, you get to build your character however you want. Uh, basically, trying to blend how you could play D anD D with like how you could run a game of Legends and Lattes if you've ever read that book. 
Well, thank you again, John, for joining us. Thank you for not only the game recommendation, but also telling us about Wanderer. Uh, we'll have all the links to all of John's socials and projects and the drive through shop and all that in the description below. If you want to keep up with us at The Fourth Leg, be sure to follow us on Twitter at The Fourth Leg. Email us at thefourthlegpod at gmail.com or join our Discord. All links to that are in our Twitter bio. Thank you guys again for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Heck yeah. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Fourth Leg. If you enjoyed this or any other episode of the show, be sure to leave us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you choose to listen. Please reach out to us and let us know what you thought of this episode at The Fourth Leg on Twitter, the fourth leg pod at gmail.com or by joining our discord links to all of those options will be in the description below if you'd like to follow hunter joe or kelsey socials links to those can be found in the description as well thank you for listening and we'll see you in two weeks i kind of want to give that podcast a listen but like having grown up in appalachia i'm like you never make deals with old gods lingering in the backwoods. Don't talk to Steve. <laughs> but he's a real good feller. It did. He got some good. He got some good corn liquor. Yeah, sure. I'm sure that he has some real good corn liquor. But you really don't want to get mixed up in Steve's bullshit. Cause... Oh, now Steve ain't <laughs> such a bad feller. <laughs>